This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 96. Today we speak about credo baptism and the Reformation. Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we want to thank everyone who helps to make this program possible. To read more about how you can contribute, please visit reformedforum.org support. It's time for another episode of Christ the Center. This is our 96th episode. We're very pleased to be back with you today. I have with me a Nick Batzig, who's a church planter with the PCA in Richmond Hill, Georgia. It's great to have you on, Nick. Thanks, Camden. Good to be on. And we also have James Dalzow, who is a PhD candidate at Westminster Theological Seminary studying systematic theology. It's great to have you over, James. All right. Great to be here. Uh, and if I didn't say already, my name is Camden Busey. We're going to be speaking today about credo baptism and the Reformation, uh, trying to dissect or at least give a, a survey of the history and explore the differences among credo baptism uh, as it interacted with uh, both the magisterial and with the radical Reformation. And James just lectured on this at Westminster Seminary in uh, the Reformation history class. Uh, he substituted for our friend Dr. Carl Truman. And so uh, I thought we'd hijack him for another episode of Christ the Center to uh, share with everyone else the types of things that he lectured about in class. So, James, could you just uh, give us just a brief uh, definition of magisterial and radical reformation before we actually get started? Because uh, oftentimes we collapse the two, and it's important that we keep those separate. Yeah, I think that's not a. I mean, that that's not a term you're going to find in the historical literature because that that uh, distinction between magisterial and radical reformations. Um, didn't really come about until, I don't know exactly, the 1960s or 70s. A, uh, a historian, Williams, who was the editor for the Anabaptist and Spiritual Writings you know, in the Library of Christian Classics, um, actually, actually came up with that distinction. And in, in a certain sense, it's helpful. Um, probably putting it uh, briefly, the Magisterial Reformation is—, is probably what most of us refer to when we think about the Protestant Reformation. Um, this, is, this is the source of, um, of a number of different branches of Reformation. It's the source of, of um, German—it's it's the source of German Reformed, um, as, well, as well as um, Swiss, Swiss Reformed or Calvinistic um, churches. It's also, it's also the origins of, of the Zwinglian Tradition, but also um, in in Eng- and also of, of Dutch of Dutch um, Calvinism or Dutch Reformed uh, tradition, but also in England of of probably certain pockets of the Anglican Church, as well as of Presbyterianism, Congregationalism, and as I as I might argue um, and make the case later, also of the particular Baptist movement mm. um, in in the mid seventeenth century in England. So the Magisterial Reformation. Uh, Basically, is in its origins is a, is a reformation of of the church away from Rome or or reforming certain abu- Roman abuses uh, within within the church that was that was basically sanctioned by the magistrate, as the name would obviously indicate. This I should also say as an aside, this would also include Lutheranism, sure, um, because Lutheranism was a reformation uh, that was done under the under the under the oversight and and care, as it were, um, of of the magistrate. Um, I think sometimes this can be confusing when we, when we think of, 
of magistrates, uh, I don't think that we should automatically think of, of kings and queens um, or even of national parliaments. Um, a, a magistrate may be more or less local. Um, city states. City, city states. Um, and then even dukes, pr- province. Yes, that's right. Saxony. That's right. Du- yeah. um, dukes, princes. Um, so these are basically you're, you're looking at not so much a national church concept like what emerged in, in, uh, in England as an, as an island nation or, or in Scotland, but you're looking more at a, at a, at a regional, let me put it this way, a, re, a regional church um, idea with, with um, protection and sanction from, from the magistrate. I, I, think, I think you can also make the case that there isn't really, especially in a place like Germany, there, there isn't really a national German identity at the time of the Reformation. Um, and I th- and I think that that's that that's an important point to make. There, there's you know that's why you talk about Upper and Lower Saxony. Yeah, and you tend we tend to talk about it almost like you know it would be. It, I mean, in some cases, the magistrate that would help reform the church may be the equivalent of today's mayor. Um, maybe with a few, maybe with a few more um, judicial powers at his disposal. But, but so would Upper and Lower Saxony for our listeners in the great state of Michigan be like UP, LP, Upper Peninsula, Lower Peninsula? Yeah, yeah. Except, except that uh, you wouldn't be you, you wouldn't you wouldn't be voting for the same uh, governor or right, sending right. Uh, representatives to the same state legislature. Well, I think the people in the Lower Peninsula would would perhaps suggest that the Upper Peninsula might as well be its own nation. Well, well, for Californians, you know, we have that we have that same uh, discrepancy between Northern Californians and Southern Californians. Yeah, and you used to uh, to live and minister in Canada. And uh, Quebec, of course, is its own little place. But <laughs> yeah, and and where I lived and ministered, they would they would like it to be more independent than it than it is. But, but um, some of these distinctions are a lot finer than we might think they are today. And I guess yeah, uh, that's the point I'm making. The magisterial yeah. reformation is 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 not so much a is not so much a a national church reformation, but it does have this and it does have this in common. More though, it's more or less local, and in some cases national, um, as in as in uh, Scotland and in England. Um, the, magister- the magisterial reformation is is um, effected or brought about in the in the early to mid 16th century with the with the not only not only the approval of the magistrate but the the advocacy of the magistrate so that the, so that the magistrate is ultimately um, deter- is ultimately um, determining or at least having some say so in in what kind of church takes root. Um, Put it this way: they they didn't have a very modern notion of the separation of church. Oh and state. no! I mean, the, the United States is is a relatively. I mean, th- this is a very new thing in the history of the church. But, it's a it's a project or an experiment in separation of church and state. And 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 even and even and the separation of church and state is something that is a very is a slowly emerging concept in the Reformed tradition. Sure, um, you don't you don't get as it were a kind of um whole you know whole uh, belief system on separation of church and state at the time of the Reformation. And, and in a certain sense, I think I, think, uh, I was even just comparing the, the, uh, the original uh, uh, statement of the Westminster Confession on, on the magistrate, <laughs> yeah. uh, comparing that with um, the OPC's uh, current uh, confession on the magistrate, and and you would think that the Congregationalists just hijacked the uh, the you know the Westminster Confession on that article. Yeah, um, and that's just to say. And that, I know I, I heard you, Nick. I mean, I, I know uh, that you don't you good. don't like that, but that's all right. Um, no, no, no. Hey, James, I want to take this in a different direction real quick because we're talking about 
um, the magistrate and baptism, and I have in front of me a um, work by Bullinger mm-hmm. on um, on the against Anabaptist, right? And the principle. So I know we need you to define who the Anabaptists were. Yeah, we'll do um, that in a moment. But it's called a most necessary and fruitful dialogue between the seditious libertine and rebel Anabaptist and the true obedient Christian, wherein as a mirror or glass you shall see the excellence and worthiness of a Christian magistrate and against what obedience is due unto public rulers of all those that profess Christ. So basically he's writing this (laughs) against the Anabaptist who opposed (laughs) the magistrate, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly right. But you see, I mean, we'll talk about this in a moment. But the 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 opposition to the magistrate there was not a kind of um, you see. I think what had happened in Anabaptism, especially in Zurich of all places, was was that um, the the Anabaptist view, and I, I'll talk about this more because it has to be compared and and sharply contrasted to the Baptist view. The Anabaptist view was that. That to be a magistrate was an was an unholy and defiling thing. A Christian a Christian could not be a magistrate. the 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 office of the magistrate was was de facto um, to throw in your lot with this you know with this passing present evil age. Um, it was to be it was to be unseparated from the world. Um, and of course, their view of the separation of church and state. I would almost want to go further and say it was really a view of the separation of Christian and state. Um, so that it's not just an institutional separation of church and state. It goes a little further, and it's it's an actually personal separation of the individual Christian in the state. Um, and I think that's it's at that level that it begins to appear that it begins to appear seditious because um, you know it was kind of like this in the 1960s. If you were a draft dodger um, and didn't make it, you know, north of the border to Canada or or off to Russia. Um, like a like a former president of ours, um, if if you didn't if you didn't if you didn't get out of town, uh, there were going to be there was going to be a judicial injunction against you, and you may even be doing some time in jail. Why? Because you weren't being because you weren't being a faithful patriotic citizen. Um, and you know people can debate whether you know whether a, a draft or something like that is right or wrong. But we have modern examples of this. I think it, you see a similar issue going on between Bullinger uh, and the Anabaptists in Zurich um, because of their radical separation not not only of institutions of church and state, but even of Christian and state, so that they wouldn't take right. up arms. Right. Uh, they they were you know in a certain sense. If the situation arose and Zurich had to raise an army uh, and defend itself, um, the Anabaptists would have been draft dodgers, you know, uh, to put it in and modern they, day terms. They would have been happy to have had some kind of religious rebellion on a large scale had that happened. Is that correct? Um, well, that they would they, they would not have been bothered by everyone agreeing with them and rising up. No, I think that I'm not sure that's right. I think that's true of the of the Anabaptist situation at Munster, but most Anabaptists take a hard position against every use of the sword, um, and they even they even develop this doctrine of what's called the bitter Christ, which is the huh. idea that that um, actually um, suffering suff- suffering becomes becomes almost one of the marks of the true believer, um, physically right. and really suffering at the hands of of the state um, in you know, in this present age. So you, you bring that, you bring up the issue of sedition and, and it raises itself because, especially in terms of ecclesiology, because the church was not thoroughly separated from, from the state. I would argue this, that, that the, the beginnings of a kind of modern reformed 
view of the separation of church and state, or as, or as Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists like to say, the spirituality of the church. Yeah. The seeds of that doctrine are are sown in in the writings of Calvin, and and even in Bollinger's sermons. Um, so so you can find the origins and the beginnings of a separation of church and state. But this doesn't mean that that uh, suddenly uh, you know Cal. Calvin wakes up one day and says, you know, we need to get these things separated institutionally, though you can see his desire for that. I mean, you, you read about, you read his letters and the accounts of his contests with the um, city council in Geneva. I mean, you know, his view is that the the sacraments aren't their domain and they need to butt out. Um, so in a, well, you find differences among the reformers. We can't think of um, of all these reformers having identical views, even of of the relationship between church and state. Right. If you look at the the ways that Zwingli went about trying to enact reform versus how Luther did it, or versus right. how others. I mean, people were very upset with Zwingli. There's even a, his own people. This, you know, you look at the affair of the sausages, which. My wife thought I was making up when I was trying to tell her about it. She thought I was pulling her leg. But that's, no, there's a, a real great, thing called the Affair title. of the Sausages, uh, in which uh, these, these soldiers um, ate sausage on, during a Lenten fast. And Zwingli was kind of okay with it, but at the same time, he didn't eat it. And, you know, and so he's one of those guys that's like, well, I want to kind of go along with the magistrate, but let's go a little slower Let's not let's not go really fast and make this sharp break or sharp reform. And I would say I would say that in terms of the break between radical and magisterial, we've kind of talked about. I think I think magisterial, you can kind of intuit what what is what is meant by magisterial reformation. That that to some extent or another, the magistrate has has an oversight and a duty to protect the church and his province or his nation. What you know, whatever the bounds of his rule are, he has an obligation to protect. Um, and promote the true religion, and also to put down uh, false and false and seditious beliefs that are going to um, disrupt either the faith of men or of society. Um, but because church and state were so much more closely wedded than that day, um, theological aberration or differences had much more potential to disrupt the peace of society. Um, and though and though Zwingli um, in Zurich in the early 1520s does have certain reforming impulses, I mean even I mean we can think of the development of his um, of his um, memorialistic view of the Lord's Supper. Um, I mean that's that's a that's a theological innovation. I might say that even Reformed Baptists don't don't agree with. They end yeah. up they end up adopting the Calvinistic view of spiritual real presence. But Reformed Baptists, but re, yeah, particular in Reformed Baptists, and that's which important. we'll get to that. We'll, we'll talk about it in a moment. But the interesting but, thing is, Zwingli does Zwingli wants some re, some pretty serious and radical reforms. But like you say, he wants to do it at the pace where the City Council of Zurich could could, as it were, kind of keep up with it and. Too much, too fast was going to ruin the cause of reform altogether. And we we we, um, we might see uh, if I don't, I don't want to step on any toes, but we might see an analog with that today. We got a lot of pro- you know, progressives in in the United States uh, that are that are loving this, but then at the same time, there there are some more blue dog Democrats who might be more sympathetic to some of these things, some of them. But seeing that they're being put into place way too fast, and we're finding a backlash, and you know, uh, yeah, two like Republican why, governors were just elected yesterday. I mean, we're finding, uh, you know, so well, there, I don't know. No, we're, there is a, there's a bit of that. The idea of too much reform too fast is going to ultimately uh, make the co- you know cause the cause to tank. It's gonna it's it cause the the opposition to really dig in their heels. And I think I think on the personal side, Zwingli had some probably some probably 
young and, and maybe a bit over-eager, over-ambitious disciples in, in people like Conrad Grebel, um, among others. But anyway, Zw- Zwingli is... Zwingli, it's a famous story that Zwingli turns on, turns viciously turns on all of his young disciples. Yeah. Though he had schooled them in new views of the Lord's Supper, and though he had schooled them even suggesting new views of, of baptism upon profession, um, once they decide that they want to do this with with or without the state's um, with or without the state's um, countenance, Zwingli turns on them because he because they become a great threat to his um, to his reform efforts. But I may also say at the same time, Zwingli. Zwingli grows increasingly friendly toward the use of the sword in the cause of the church. There's a, there's a very uh, famous and funny story in, uh, of when Zwingli went up to meet with, um, with Luther and have their discussion at the Marburg Colloquy about the, uh, about the Lord's Supper. There's, it's reported that Zwingli made a statement that, that if he doesn't agree, that if Luther doesn't agree with him, he'll break Luther's neck. And, uh, and <laughs> a Luther, Lutheran-esque statement. <laughs> and, well, this, and Luther's response was... Um, we we don't break necks in in uh, Germany, Zwingli. You know, so that so his, so his, he's kind of you know it, the, for all yeah, they for chop all his, heads. Well, for all of his aggressiveness, uh, Zwingli was much more martial uh, than than Luther, and and eventually he dies in the second Kalpel in the second Kalpel Wars, uh, fighting the Catholic cantons. You know what, fifteen thirty one. He's dead okay. because he's taken up the sword on the cause of the church state. Um, against against the Roman Catholics, so the, the the radical Reformation though begins to emerge in that context in Zurich. I think if you really want to pinpoint some beginnings, it's among the it's among the followers of of um, of Zwingli. Now, I think an inter- interesting thing that should be said up front is that the origins of radical of the radical Reformation aren't aren't simply because um they came to a new view of baptism. I would say that they came to a new view of baptism uh because they had already come to a new understanding of the relationship of the church and the state. So I would it's say the, the reverse of what is often claimed. Yeah, I think sometimes you think that, you know, we have this idea that that the that well, because we call them Anabaptists, the biggest issue for them must have been baptism. Now true, baptism was the most was the most obvious offense against the magisterial reformation against the idea of a christian citizen or a what do we call it a a a church or a a state churchman or that kind of thing right. it was the most obvious break from that tradition but i don't think i don't think that it was the driving force of that break i think it was a natural consequence of new views uh, probably emerging within anabaptism on the relationship of the state to the church or okay. to the or even even more let me say this of of the christian of the Christian to the state, more than church state, there's this whole question of the relationship of Christian to the state, mm-hmm. um, so that so that a believer couldn't be couldn't be a magistrate. And in his um, in his treatise against the Anabaptists, uh, John Calvin makes extensive arguments against this notion that that you know you couldn't have a Christian magistrate. Well, how could it? How could he be a minister of God? Um, and and yet he and yet by by fulfilling the calling as a minister of God as a statesman, he's thereby precluded from the possibility of being a real Christian. Um, so he so Calvin attacks them early on on this, and and this probably highlights a major difference. I think maybe a few things have to be said, and I I don't, I don't know if we want to go much more into the origins of, of magisterial and Anabaptist tradition, except to say this, and some people have pointed out, that that the Anabaptists seem to be um, the first, how do we put this, free churchmen. The Anabaptists seem to be the beginnings of free churchmanship. And yet, 
I think we would want to say, especially Presbyterian free churchmen, which in England began officially in 1662, and in Scotland was really solidified at the time of the disruption in the middle 19th century, uh, Presbyterian free churchmanship or congregational free churchmanship wouldn't necessarily look to the free churchmanship of the Anabaptists as their legitimate forerunners, meaning the motive, no. <laughs> the motivating impulses of Reformed free churchmanship are quite different than the motivating impulses of Anabaptist free churchmanship. Anabaptist free churchmanship develops out of this idea of of what's called the pure church. And by pure church, I don't mean believer's church. Sometimes we make this confusion that, that Anabaptist pure church equals, equals credo-baptist or particular Baptist believer's church. They're actually different notions of of the purity of the yeah. local church. And you don't mean OPC either. That's that's always the joke, the, the only pure church. <laughs> well, you know, that, that wouldn't be very Presbyterian to, no, to it's talk not. about pure church. Uh, no, because at least this, our confessions, side, this side of glory, I mean. Yes, because well, our confession speaks speaks otherwise there are different levels of 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 uh every local every every church is more or less pure pure. it's a mixed it's every church is mixed okay so so you have well let's put it this way the free churchmanship of the anabaptists is probably seems to be primarily motivated by their notion of separation their doctrine of separation is and by separation i don't mean i don't mean separated separated churches, but I mean separated Christians from the world. The idea of it's of an ethical um, and moral holiness that can't have anything to do with the state. Not only can it not have anything to do with the state's involvement in religion, it can't even have anything to do with the state's involvement in statesmanship. Um, so that the separation of church and state and free churchmanship and Anabaptism is really driven not so much by institutional concerns of what is the church and what is the state, but it's actually driven more in terms of what possible relationship could the Christian ever have to the secular state. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think I think to make that point true, it is the original free church, so to speak, but the reason that it was a free church is actually quite different than yeah. later reformed free churchmanship. Yeah. And that's that's an important point. Now, I, could I could I piggyback yeah. off that and Please. say, let me if if you're if you're if you're of Reformed and Presbyterian conviction and you're willing to acknowledge that that though the Anabaptists were free churchmen and, and you believe in free churchmanship, they weren't your forerunners. Let me also suggest, and we'll develop this a little bit. I hope that that though the Anabaptists have other things in, in common with later uh, with later groups in the Reformed tradition, such as for instance. Um, the the doctrine of believers' baptism, um, that doesn't mean that they are necessarily the forerunners of every credo Baptist either. In fact, as <laughs> I as I look at the, uh, I'm holding, the, I'm looking at the title page here, of the, um, I'm looking at the title page here of the original uh, particular Baptist confession of of 1646 or 1644, and then republished in 46. And this is the actual title of the particular Baptist confession 120 years after Anabaptism developed down on the continent. It's it's called the Confession of Faith of those churches which are commonly, though falsely called, Anabaptists, presented to the view of all that fear God to examine by the touchstone of the word of truth, um, as likewise for the taking off those aspersions which are frequently both in pulpit and print, although unjustly cast upon them. 
That's that's the actual title of the first ever Reformed Baptist Confession. Mm-hmm. Um, those those churches falsely called Anabaptists. I mean, there's a real self consciousness because you look at a superficial uh, level, you see credo baptism on both parts. The tendency is to automatically categorize them together. That would be that. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. That would be about as sophisticated as as collapsing every version of paedo baptism. It, well, it'd be it'd be like me saying, you know, I, I've just been reading. Um, I've just been reading the Archbishop of of Constantinople in in the Eastern Church on 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 pedo baptism, and I can't believe what you people in the OPC believe. It's amazing, <laughs> you know. You that's, was, that is what a lot of Baptists do. Oh, it's Presbyterian saying, well, a federal vision or a Eastern Orthodox or even a Roman Catholic understanding of baptism is the logical implication of a but Presbyterian. The, yeah, but the reverse is, is also often right, done to right, the Baptists, right. which yeah, we I'm spoke agreeing. of just in this, uh, that, that I, John Gerstner lecture you set off was, in a sense, uh, doing the same thing to, yeah, to the Ger- Baptist Yeah, Gerstner's position. discussion of Anabaptists moves very freely back and forth between, you know, conversations he had with a Baptist friend the day before and what he thinks the right. Anabaptists taught. And I guess what I would want to say is this. Right. Just as the Anabaptists um, had a completely different understanding of free churchmanship and the separation of church and state than, than uh, later, later um, wings of the Reformed tradition. I also want to say this. They also had a different doctrine even of baptism than the 17th century Reformed Baptists. The 17th century Reformed Baptists, though, first of all, the Anabaptists weren't strictly immersionists. Uh, that's one point to make, but that's 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 really in, that's a that's a small point considering this that the the Anabaptist doctrine of baptism is actually a different doctrine of baptism than what you find in the 1644, 46, and 1677 Baptist Confessions. Well, what is well, the difference then? And you don't have the Calvinism, right? The Anabaptists were against oh, right. the yeah, they're very, that's right. and they were more like Quakers yeah, in some ways. Well, they, they are they are the forerunners of of the Brethren tradition, which would include Quakers, different right. bre- different wings of Brethrenism, um, Hutterites, Mennonites. Right. So um, there are major Amish. doctrinal differences, b- b- well beyond the baptism. Yeah, well, be- that's true. I mean, there is there's a sense in which in which the the Baptists of the mid 17th century in in London that produced the 1640. 46 and 77 um, confessions is is a um, is is a radically different I don't I mean not to coin right. a pun but radically different um, <laughs> position on you're right on predestination free will um, total depravity yeah, I mean um, Calvinism Cal, yeah Calvinism but I mean a, you also have to say this there wasn't really there wasn't really Calvinism uh, at the time I mean Calvin isn't even a convert uh, to to uh, the Protestant faith at the time that the Anabaptists are really beginning and forging their identity. Cal- right. Calvin's still in Rome himself. And basically, they, they adopt a, semi, a semi-Pelagian uh, theology over against the accepted um, Augustinian um, tradition that passes down with slight modification into Reformed theology. What does this definition of baptism look like then okay, in distinction think, yeah, between good. Anabaptists and then particular, particular and general Baptists? Yeah, and I, yeah, it's good. You bring up general Baptists. I think we have to throw a, a third a third Baptistic group in there, which are the English general Baptists, which are also significantly dissimilar from continental Anabaptists. And I'll, I'll try to explain that in a moment. Basically this, for the Anabaptists, um, baptism is, is uh, first and foremost something that the that the recipient of baptism 
is actually performing. It's it's a it, it's not not what we talked about baptism as an act of obedience. It's not that. It's more than that. It's the sign of baptism isn't a sign of God to the recipient in baptism, like we would say in the Reformed tradition, and like 17th century Bapt, uh, Reformed Baptists agree with the Reformed tradition. But it is actually a sign of the one being baptized to the congregation of the of the gathered um, and voluntarily gathered believers. Um, of his of his commitment to to um, to basically uh, live and die with Christ, as it were, so that the the sign of of dying and rising with Christ in an Anabaptist doctrine of baptism is not a sign that God has performed this work on your behalf. Um, it's not it's not something. It's let's put it. I think you can sum it up this way: baptism is not a is not a word of God to man, but it's a word of man to man. Uh, in Anabaptism. And in fact, in a lot of ways, maybe just an aside, I don't want to go off on this, but that's a lot of what we see in American Baptist experience today, mm. um, is we, we basically look at baptism as primarily a statement of belonging. And of course, both the Radical and Magisterial Reformations believe that baptism is is that sign and act by which someone officially enters the church. So they're agreed on that. But but what? But more than that, more than the sign or seal of entrance— um, to the church, what it, what is actually the performative value of the the sacrament or ordinance of baptism? Anabaptists would say that the performative value is something that man himself performs by making a statement of intention to be identified with the church and to and to um, and to suffer with Christ, as it were. So it's a it's a statement of intent and declaration and commitment. Let me put it this way: a statement of of maybe personal testimony uh, and resolve hmm. um, that's not that's not at all what you find um, in <laughs> that's not all what you find among among um, the reformed obviously or among reformed baptists in particular uh, reformed baptists would basically say that it is first and foremost a sign of god um, to to the believer and it's something that that baptism is first and foremost a word of god to man uh, not not of man to man um, trying to find the uh, trying to find the correct okay here we are on of baptism this is the 1677 uh, Baptist confession baptism is an ordinance and I just let me just say this don't don't get hung up on the fact that Baptists don't use the word sacrament um, I think Reformed Baptists Reformed Baptists don't use the word sacrament and there's a and, right. and I think part of the reason why especially in 1677 um, is because the threat of Roman Catholicism in England in 1677 was was much more. Uh, I mean, who, who's on the throne in 1677? Uh, Charles II, and he's soon to be followed by the Roman Catholic James II. Roman Catholicism is a great greater threat in England in 1677 when the Baptists write their confession than when their forerunners in, of in 1658 Congregationalists wrote the Savoy Declaration, or than when the Presbyterians wrote the Westminster Confession. The threat of Roman Catholicism is more conspicuous, and I think that's why there's a little bit of a fear of the word sacrament, not because they don't essentially stand with the Reformed tradition. Anyway, that's a big aside, I know. <laughs> and, and it was probably an over, overreaction a bit, a caution to the uh, superstition bound up with the idea of mystery, you know, sacrament yeah. means mystery and, and of in course, the Roman Catholic Church. The Puritans obviously don't have that element of priestcraft in, you know, right. their doctrine. But So I, I think it's probably just a matter of caution more than, it is because than, the, than nature. 
the same men who wrote these con- these Baptist confessions and used the word ordinance in other in other letters and sermons are just as are are willing to use the word sacrament. So I don't think it's a you know it's it's not a big hang up. But anyway, baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. This is interesting. To be under the party baptized, a sign of his fellowship with him, uh, with him, that is with Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, that language is taken right from the Westminster Confession, um, and of remission of sins. So everything up to that point, this is the beginning of, of chapter 29 of the 1677, up to that point, what is baptism for, for the 17th century Reformed Baptists? It's something that God. It's something that God, in a special and a unique way, is saying to, um, and in in a sort of promissory, signifying sense, performing on behalf of the one being baptized. Meaning this: baptism isn't so much something you do as as much as it is something that God does to you um, through the church. Um, that- James, I have to say that sounds very Presbyterian, buddy. Yeah, and just for the sake of comparison, <laughs> let me read from the confession. <laughs> it's all my Baptist friends. Seriously, this is a major point, and this is not for me to to you know get in an argument. But you're right. I mean, just wait till modern, we get to the Lord's Supper. <laughs> even modern, even modern Reformed Baptist, I fear sometimes. Obviously, not you, but I do fear because James is this different. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm doing. This is what Thanks, I'm Cam. saying. I did, and it's it's my statement rather than this is what God is saying, right, this right. is his sign. Well, for, yeah. for a matter of comparison, let me read uh, Westminster Confession 28.1. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. And so very I, similar language there. There is. And I mean, the difference, the difference in those, in terms, of, in terms of what is actually occurring in baptism, the, the difference in those is, is relatively minuscule compared to the difference between both of those positions exactly. and the Anabaptist exactly. position. Um, and interestingly, the, the Baptist editions of uh, the additions of, um, of a sign of fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection. It, now, of course, that, that concern of, of, of engra- what this is what I see them doing. I see the Reformed Baptists basically enlarging on what is already there in Calvin and in the Presbyterian Confession about engra- when you talk about union with Christ and grafting into him. Basically, they're just specifying exactly the nature of uh, the, specifically what it is to be engrafted into Christ. It is to be united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Now, Death and resurrection obviously gives rise to certain Baptistic convictions about the mode of baptism, but I think it's important to to notice this. The mode of baptism follows from what they understand baptism to be signifying, and they understand baptism to be signifying that God has incorporated you into uh, into living and vital union with Christ. Which doctrine they take both from Calvin's soteriology and from the engrafting language of the Savoy Declaration and the Westminster Confession of Faith. The point being, though we arrive at a different conclusion about the mode of baptism, um, we don't we aren't necessarily getting there from different theological traditions. We're only we're only extracting out uh, 
a difference in terms of practice, but not a difference in terms of what we actually think baptism is saying to the saying to the recipient. So this this brings up the point that you made in class, though there is no capital B Baptist in the 16th century, right? In this, yeah, and that, that's that I made that point in the, in the lecture because there uh, Carl had asked me to give a to give a talk on the relationship of Baptist to the Magisterial Reformation. As I began to think about the 16th century Magisterial Reformation. The conclusion I came to was that there is no there is no first person Baptist connection to the Magisterial Reformation in the 16th century because there are no there are no Baptists there are Baptistic positions but there are no Baptists in this traditional sense even there in the 16th century to be present uh, Baptist the Baptist position basically emerges from two strands of English separatism within the Anglican Church in the, in the early to mid-17th century. So to speak of uh, the tradition that they rise out of, at least the particular Baptists, Good. It, 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 we, we can't say that uh, for them that it's different from what it is for uh, the Presbyterians at the okay. time, because the soteriological tradition is the same. Good. I'll give the, I'll give the short version of how that happens. The question, the question is obviously, hey, look, in the 17th century, you have these, you have these credo-baptist views, some are Arminian, some are Calvinistic, you know, uh, called the general or the particular Baptists. General being Arminians, particular being and particular Calvinistic. being a reference to atonement, uh, particular redemption. That obviously is is a shorthand phrase of of describing a group more aligned with the Reformed tradition as a whole. But where where do these Baptists come from? I think the 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 popular story is that that well you know Baptist Baptistic view begets Baptistic view. That's the idea that that one Baptistic view that precedes another in time. Must also the trail be trail of blood, right? Yeah, must also be part. Yeah, well, trail of blood, or even 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 more general. Trail of blood. Uh, our general inclination that's, to that's think. To, well, that's true. The, the trail of blood theories, um, you know, the, are are part of this. Um, that tends to be more of an Anabaptist fascination, though some hard separatist American Baptists also like to tap into it and trace the roots right back to the original Baptist, John the Baptist. Um, anyway, I say that facetiously, but w- Sorry for interrupting. my my point is even more than even more than the trail of blood theories, which are obviously outlandish and 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 you know unsubstantial schol- in scholarship, um, is is this tendency that we all have toward a kind of successionist view that when we see one position that looks similar to one before it, that we think that there must be some kind of organic family tree at work there, right. that that you know you know but. But what I'm wanting to say is just as much as Presbyterian and Reformed free churchmen would deny all organic ties to Anabaptist free churchmanship, um, so also particular Baptists and general Baptists want to deny all organic connections to Anabaptist um, credo-baptism. Um, meaning right. our credo baptism comes from different impulses. Now the question is, well, then where did it come from? I mean, if if you're saying these aren't the four, they're only forerunners in time, but they aren't even in the same family tree. Um, my, I'll give you I'll give you an illustration. My last name is Dolzal or Dol, Dolishal uh, is probably a more correct pronunciation. It's a Bohemian name, very common in the Czech Republic. Um, it's a Czech name. When my son was born, uh, there was a nurse in the hospital whose last name was exactly the same, Dolzal. I had I had never met a Dolzal in my life I wasn't related to, um, and I had never met a Dolzal who wasn't of, of Czech origin. Um, and I said, oh, is your, is your father from Prague? And she said, no, my father's Polish. <laughs> um, and so, so somehow the name had, had passed over um, in, into this, into this uh, 
line of poles and had nothing had nothing um, ethnically or nationally to do uh, with my heritage at all. Um, the point being, we tend to think that because something because something looks similar or sounds similar, it must be part of some grand um, scheme of organic succession or material or material inheritance. And what I'm wanting to say is. Both the general Baptist tradition and the particular Baptist tradition in the 17th century are not the heirs of Anabaptism in any way whatsoever, any more than Reformed Free Churchmanship is the heir of Anabaptism. Uh, the, the driving impulses are different. So where does it come from in England? In short, uh, it stems from the fact that England had such an incomplete Reformation. I mean, the, the big joke in Reformation history is when you talk about in- the English Reformation, the joke is... What English Reformation? <laughs> um, and you can see that in that the English church has has a a Reformation in parts, but because of the heavy hand of, of Queen Elizabeth, she doesn't really allow the church to thoroughly reform. In fact, if there's any new head of the church, um, she simply displaces the Pope with herself in a way. Um, so I, uh, William Holler, a, a great 20th century historian uh, at Columbia University, on Puritanism, said that the trouble that so many Reformed churchmen in England had was that they couldn't abide the fact of a Reformation that reformed so little. Um, that was the difficulty in six, what is about 1558, uh, 1558, yeah, that uh, Elizabeth uh, comes to the throne. And her Reformation is rather incomplete. She retains a lot of Roman sacerdotalism, uh, etc. All right, so what happens? You have an incomplete Reformation. So this, pu- this, puts, this puts the screws on those who believe, of, believe in Reformation through the magistrate, because now you're faced with a magistrate who wants you to be Protestant, but doesn't really want to allow you to thoroughly reform the church. And so you're still wearing, uh, you're still wearing uh, the garments of Rome. You're still bowing and, or kneeling, rather, to receive the Lord's Supper placed on your tongue by the priest. You're still railing off the Lord's table at the east end of the church. I mean, you're doing a lot of Roman things. Well, why would Elizabeth want to keep all those things? I think (laughs) think the the quick and easy answer is because a lot of her Anglican priests had only a few years earlier been Roman Catholic priests when Bloody Mary was on the throne. Exactly. So here comes Elizabeth. She's got to keep this state church in line. Well, you have a choice. You have all all these Roman Catholic priests serving under Bloody Mary for five years, uh, persecuting uh, the Protestants relentlessly. Elizabeth comes to the throne, she makes it very easy for them to convert to the Protestant faith because, because substantially, outwardly speaking, uh, they really have to reform or change very little. You can ba- basically, you can be a Roman Catholic without the Pope is, 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 a, is about what Elizabeth's reforms amount to. At the same time, though, she wants, to accom- she wants to accommodate the sympathies of Reformed churchmen in England, those that were more in line with Cramner's reforms. Um, and she wants to incorporate them. And so the, so the church is made up of both Anglo-Catholics, high sacerdotal, high sacramental Anglo-Catholics, and also uh, Reformed churchmen that are hoping that they can affect some reform from the inside. But we have to say something about what happened in the five years of Bloody Mary. During the five years of Bloody Mary, something happened in English life for which there wasn't really a counterpart in the, pro- in the Continental Reformations. What happened was that that uh, Protestants really had two choices under Mary. You could, you could go underground, as it were, and meet in secret, and then what are you doing if you're meeting in secret? But you're gathering, you're gathering voluntary associations of Christians together as a manifestation of the true and Reformed Church. In other words, she, she sort of forces them into a version of congregationalism, or at least of separated churchmanship. Um, and, and, it, and it plants the seed in the mind of Protestant Englishmen that it is possible to 
exist as Reformed churchmen without the magistrate's um, blessing. Okay, mm-hmm. but something else happens. Other, other Reformed-minded Englishmen leave England, and they go down to the continent, and they go to either Zurich or Geneva, and they experience re- Reformation uh, to the full, as it were. I, I like to say that if you're an, Engl- if you're an Englishman, uh, you know, if you're an Englishman um, who goes into exile under, under Bloody Mary's reign from 16, or 1553 to 58, those five years, if you leave England and you go down to the continent for the first time and you begin to experience Reformed church life in Zurich or Geneva, it, it's, sort of analogous to, um, it's sort of analogous to someone in Kansas who's only ever experienced the county fair finally going to Disneyland for the first time. Uh, you know, Zurich or Geneva, this is Disneyland for reformed churchmen. <laughs> this, is, this, is the, this is the ultimate experience. Well, what happens? They obviously want to bring those reforms back to England, and Elizabeth coming to the throne as a Protestant, mo- as a Protestant monarch appears to give them the opportunity to come back and thoroughly reform the English church. The devastating story of the last half of the 16th century in England is that the magistrate never lets them thoroughly reform it. Well, what, comes, what happens during those years? What happens is the the separated the separated churchmanship experienced by those who stayed in England, um, which is reformed in its mindset, uh, weds itself to the the reforming aspirations of those that have re- returned from the continent with great desire to reform the English church. And, and together they begin to explore, let me put it this way, they begin to explore a form, a, a kind of a primitive form of congregationalism, meaning, uh, separated churchmanship or or churchmanship without it, it may not be congregationalism in the sense that we think of autonomous local churches, but they begin to explore. Well, let me, maybe better to say this: they begin to explore free churchmanship in a way that in a way that Calvin would not have been comfortable with. Um, but the context, so socially, demographically, ecclesiastically, is so radically different than the continent. The continent tended to be all or nothing: either you reform the you reform the territory or you didn't. Um, and if you didn't, I mean, there was no question in the mind of a Frenchman living in France whether France had been reformed. It hadn't. It was it was a definitive failure of Reformation. In Geneva, there was no question whether reform had been affected. It had. Um, there wasn't this kind of ambiguity of partially reform. I mean, there, the, the reformed is, Reformation is advancing by degrees, but there is a certain definitiveness or settledness about the Continental Reformation that just never happened in the English experience. Um, it's still very Roman in many ways, or Anglo-Catholic. Um, so you have a desire from within the state church to purify the state church, but there's also emerging within that um, the willingness to to meet vo- in a voluntary association um, outside of the tr- state church because you believe the state church is so corrupt. And so there you begin the tradition, uh, the English noble tradition of conventicles uh, meeting outside of the state church. Anyway, what happens? Uh, through the course of that, uh, obviously the desire is ultimately that the state church be set along thoroughly reformed lo- along thoroughly reformed lines. But at least the possibility of of a separated free churchmanship uh, reformed experience uh, at least begins to look like more of a reality to Englishmen. Um, essentially, it's from it's from this separating tendency that the two Baptist traditions emerge in the 17th century. Uh, the first one to emerge can probably be dated to about 1612, and it's actually the General Baptist tradition. Now, this emerges from 
from Armenia from Ar- from Armenians who had uh, spent time on the continent. Now, l- let's put it this way: if you're on the continent and you're, let's say, you're in Holland seeking asylum for one reason or another, um, and you are gathering as an English church, whether you are whether you are Episcopal, Presbyterian, or whatever. By default, you end up becoming a sort of congregationalist because you're isolated in a foreign country and you gather as an English-speaking church. Well, what have you done? You've gathered as a as a voluntary association that is locally self-governed. Um, anyway, so some Armeni- some Armenian Anglicans develop a. I'm, I'm giving you the most vague and outlined version of the story, but but develop an inclination toward. Um, a congregational type of polity, mm. um, though though Protestant. Again, this is this is neither Anabaptist nor is this thoroughly Reformed because their soteriology is actually semi-Pelagian, which which actually which had a foothold within the Anglican Church. Remember, the Anglican Church always had semi-Pelagians in in the highest offices um, as bishops and archbishops, and and so. Here you have a semi-Pelagian is a semi-Pelagian Anglicanism that that weds itself to. A, a form of a primitive form of congregationalism comes back to England and infers from its congregationalism the practice of uh, it basically says vo- voluntary local churches also need to correspond to well, let me put it this way voluntary entrance into the local church yeah. and then eventually the sacraments as it were sort of catch up with the ecclesiology and I mean, I know a congregationalist would say, "No, you know the sacra- you know the sacraments aren't catching up. The ecclesiology can be there with paedo baptism." But for most for most congregationalists, the final outcome is that they become Baptists. Now, my favorite congregationalist, John Owen, contrary to Baptist wishes, <laughs> does not become a Baptist, nor does he go back to Presbyterianism. But anyway, suffice it to say, you have you have semi Pelagian doctrine that arises within the Anglican tradition that weds itself with congregational churchmanship, which ultimately produces credo-baptism in the general Baptist tradition. Now, that's, that's basically the origins of, of what we call credo, what we call the Baptist tradition. Now, now, particular Baptists don't come till later. And I think the popular idea, the, the fun story to tell is that there was a split that there was a split within the Baptist community in England between the um, between the Baptists who basically got Calvinized and those who wanted to hold on to their voluntarist semi-Pelagian tendencies, <laughs> which, by the way, weren't Anabaptist semi-Pelagian tendencies. They were Anglican semi-Pelagian tendencies. Anyway, uh, that's a different story. Um, so... So here you have this you have this group that suddenly becomes enlightened within the general Baptist movement and they decide that they're going to become, you know, five-point Calvinists. But I have I have good news uh for you and the good news is this <laughs> there never actually was a split um within w- within the um English Baptist church life between the particular and general Baptist because there never was a union between the the particular and general Baptist. Huh. The particular Baptist tradition does not emerge out of the general Baptist tradition, but actually grows up alongside of it from a totally different um, context altogether. Um, basically, not not an Anglo-Catholic soteriology, but from within a reformed, but from within a reformed emerging congregationalism. Eventually, by the 1630s, some congregations, particularly seven congregations in London, um, come to adopt a—I mean, they debate for years. They don't just automatically want to say, well, we're going to be credo-baptist. But because they adopt a kind of a separated churchmanship uh, that is congregationally administered—when I say congregational, I don't mean the kind of what, 
what we tend to think of as local church autonomy. I'm not talking about radical autonomy. I'm talking about the keys, the ceiling of church power being within the session or elders uh, within the local church itself. Within the local church is the structure of ultimate church power. That's congregationalism in a nutshell. Eventually, the seven congregations in London adopt a credo-baptist position. The interesting thing is it's been demonstrated um, in some recent articles, and we'll, we'll probably post these on the site where they can find this, but it's been demonstrated that the the original seven congregations of, of uh, you know, I, I would call Anglican Puritans come Congregationalists come Baptists, um, the the position of credo-baptism, they clearly aren't even aware that there is another credo-baptist tradition already <laughs> going on in England because they ask, they, 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 they're basically on a quest to find other credo-baptists and they profess that they can't find or nor do they know of any. In fact, they even send a group down to the, uh, send someone down to the continent to see if they can find really? credo-baptists down there. And all they find is brethren. And well, hey, well, that's not what we believe and that's not why we believe it. So they come back to England and they, they reject the brethren movement and they aren't, they aren't even, they've, they've come to the position before they've ever made contact um, with the Anabaptist heirs on the continent, the, the fascinating thing is they're entirely unaware that for nearly, for over 20 years, there has been an English credo-baptist, you know, a general Baptist tradition growing up. But that's not too surprising because there probably were only about five congregations of general Baptists by the 1630s. So the fact that the particular Baptists that are emerging out of Anglican Puritanism, uh, English Puritanism in London isn't surprising at all. Suffice it to say this, the, the particular Baptists emerge out of, of um, concern uh, about co- congregationalist tendencies that are emerging over, the, over nearly 70 or 80 years within the Anglican church itself. Who are the forerunners? Who are the forerunners of particular Baptists? They are Reformed Anglicans. Uh, Reformed Anglicans are the are the are the immediate predecessors in the family tree um, for for Reformed Baptists. So we we generally have uh, so we've been, we've we touched on three different strands or types of Baptist uh, positions, the Anabaptists in particular and the General Baptist, but And three different doctrines of ex- baptism. Exactly. So the so the moral and the moral of your, or the argument that you're presenting. You can call it the moral the, the moral story. of the story is that none of them come out of the same seedbed in a sense. No they're, they do. Well, they're all in independent. A, in one sense in one sense the general in particular come out of the same seedbed of congregationalizing Anglicanism. But but there they are totally unaware of each other. Yeah. Uh, so so it's not so there's no you know they're not even somebody called them cousins. Um they're the, the particular Baptist is no more a cousin to the Anabaptist or the General Baptist than than the Free Presbyterian is to his Anabaptist forerunners. In other words n- yeah. not really at all. Yeah. Um, not in that sense. The other thing is to say this: three doctrines of baptism. We've already talked about the Anabaptist doctrine of baptism, which is a declaration. It's a word of man to man. But and we've talked about the 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 particular or Reformed Baptist doctrine, which is a word of God to man. Um, a very similar language but, to the Westminster Confession of yeah, Faith. Almost identical, yeah. And then, but then there's also a kind of a kind of middle position, which is the General Baptist. Um, which is the general Baptist doctrine of baptism, which basically takes baptism to be it is it is something divine it is something that God does toward man. It's not it's not our modern notion of you know stand in the baptismal and give a testimonial. It it is a word of God to man, but it doesn't signify it doesn't signify death, burial, and resurrection or engrafting into Christ or incorporation into Christ. It actually signifies washing or cleansing. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's interesting. It, I, I would just throw a theory out. I'd love to see someone do an article on this. I think that the the cleansing or washing doctrine of baptism that we find in the general Baptist movement has some unique similarities to the predecessors of the general Baptist within the semi-Pelagian sacramental tradition in the Anglican Church, which also tended to be... Now, they don't think that it... They don't think that it... Um, you know, they don't believe in, in baptismal regeneration, but they, but they do, but they do hang on to some of the formal structures that that used to be there in baptismal regeneration in terms of the notion of baptism as a washing or a cleansing performed on your behalf. Now, it's not a washing or cleansing that saves you, so the general Baptists get out of that that high sacramental tradition, but they they still keep that notion of baptism as a washing. So, baptism for the for the Reformed Baptists. Is the is essentially the same. It's it's a word of God to man regarding his engrafting into Christ and his union with Christ. The General Baptist, it's a word of God to man regarding his cleansing or his washing. And the Particular Baptist, it's a word of man. Or the, I'm sorry, the Anabaptist, it's a word of man to man regarding his resolve uh, to follow Christ. Okay, so now to bring this into uh, a more contemporary discussion, um, James, of course, as you've already guessed, is a Reformed Baptist. Um, in short, if it's possible, could you describe for our listeners, because we, we don't have too many Reformed Baptist listeners yet, we'd like to have more, uh, but uh, could you describe your position of why you are a credo-baptist? What are the reasons for your credo-baptism? Because I think this will be enlightening for a lot of pedo baptists out there to hear how you describe your reasons for being a credo-baptist. Well, I think I I would say I would say that my reasons um, aren't. I mean, I, I think you can. I mean, there's the typical and probably f- somewhat familiar discussions, you know, of of kind of what I kind of call the text the text on text uh, approach to articulating a Baptist or Pado Baptist view. Which and it's not wrong. Don't get me wrong. I think that arguing uh, this or that particular text against another particular text is is a good is a good and. Uh, is, is a good way to discuss it, but I would say that that ultimately, um, my my reasons for being a particular Baptist are themselves um, covenantal, and I and I know immediately, and I've talked to some of, I mean, we've I've been in the OPC for three years um, as 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 an ordained Reformed Baptist, and obviously not a member because I couldn't be a member of the local church; I'd have to be a member of Presbytery. But I don't believe in being but a member. I don't believe in being a member of Presbytery, so I believe in being a member of a local church. Yeah, and as you're a student, just to clarify, you are under pastoral care, you and your family sure. of our congregation. Um, yeah, and that and that was and that was set up by your, that was set yeah. up by special arrangement between our Reformed Baptist Church in California and the OPC here, and, yes. and it's been a it's been a happy arrangement um, for us. I guess I want to say this that that. The reason, the reason I would want to say broadly at, at the outset, for anyone who's a Reformed Baptist or thinking about being a Reformed Baptist, um, the reason for being a Reformed Baptist um, need, needs to, needs to um, root itself more organically in a covenantal outlook, meaning meaning it can't we need to sort of get past this is again i'm getting i'm sort of getting on a, on a soapbox here um we need to get past the notion that that oh i'm 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 a baptist oh yeah and by the way i'm also covenantal and reformed as if you know yeah. as, as if as if you can sort of um as if you can sort of hold one in the left hand and one in the right hand and say i'm holding both of these together i i like to i like to say i'm not i'm not um i'm not baptist and reform but right. i'm baptist because i'm reformed 
Um, now, I think, you know, and obviously the Presbyterians as well, you must mean, you must mean a different, you must have a different idea of covenant then. Im- immediately, there's this idea that, well, you must have a different kind of covenantalism if you're going to get the Baptist position. But I guess, uh, for, first off, I don't think that that really answers well to what 17th century particular Baptists are doing. They, they are articulating the doctrine of baptism in language not only drawn from from reformed documents, but also drawn from Calvin's institutes and exposition of scripture regarding the doctrine of union with Christ, regarding the, regarding the notion of, of uh, the Old Testament as type and the New Testament as anti-type, regarding the notions, uh, especially Vossian and Ritter-Bossian notions of eschatology. I would say, ultimately, my reasons for being a Baptist um, have have more to do with my understanding of of the already and not yet, yeah. and of the church as as and of the church as the eschatological people of God, because Christ is the eschatological Son. We are the eschatological Son corporately by incorporation, or to use the confessional language, engrafting into Christ as partici- as participant with Christ. I would I I tend to I see the church as I see the church as the body of of the as the body of those um as the body of those that are that are in that are in Christ vitally by faith. Yeah, so you um, would, for typological you, reasons though, I mean just typological clarify, and eschatological reasons. Yeah, so you would see that the blood or the physical sign has because of eschatology has yielded to a spiritual sign. Well, yeah, and, and the, the reason, and the reason and I say that the sign isn't given now to blood descendants. Have we talk. See, you, now you're getting me on a topic. I'm pretty. See, I live, I live, I live in the world of Westminster Seminary and the OP, and I'm and I actually live very happily in this world, and as a convinced Baptist. But I've made it a point not to, uh, you know, I'm 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 not the gra- I'm not the great uh, evangelist for the cause, uh, simply because I, I, you know, I don't think it's my place to come into someone else's church or confessional school and and change the minds of anyone. But well, Nick and uh, I have had James, discussions about I, this too. I mean, I just, the only question I would have, you, you said, you know, most of the traditional pedo Baptist summary would be that we have a different um, doctrine of, you know, covenant or the covenants. And I, I understand that as a Reformed Baptist, you have a covenant of works, covenant of grace um, structure. I believe the Bible does, but we do have a fundamental I've been really wrestling with this. We do have a fundamental different definition of covenant with regard to the new covenant because if we agree – Well, it depends because there's not even – I haven't found – I mean this is just – I'll just observe this. I haven't found an exact uniform – Pado Baptist and Presbyterian doctrine of the New Covenant, meaning meaning right, right, right. you have yeah. you have views of the New Covenant that it's that it's uh, purely gracious, but you also have views of the New co- that covenant as covenant entails dual sanctions. So there's differences among well, among we can, even Pado Baptists. Uh, for sure, for sure, say that there are, there are different right, right, right. eschatologies no, of the New Covenant between you and I. Uh, not yeah, but, different eschatologies, different timings of the eschatology. That, no, that's what I mean. There's yeah. a different. You, we would say you are. Overly realized, and, and I would, would say, say that I'm you. Under. I would say that you no. haven't accounted for enough already, and you would say that I'm. You would say yeah, that I'm not allowing not enough, yet. not yet. Yep. Um, <laughs> but but hey, let's, hey James, I'm yeah. not trying to challenge. I'm really just no challenge. No, no challenge me. It's that's okay. No, no, it's no, not, no, no, that's no. okay. I'm really just trying to get clarification. Well, let's put it if this anybody way. does listen to this. Um, so I'll I would go. say I would say, and you're absolutely right. I mean. Covenant's very hard to define. Clearly, our our debates with Federal Vision have shown that the 25 years ago, all the debates in the the Dutch Reformed churches show that. I generally accept uh, sort of a hybrid 
definition, modified definition from O. Palmer Robertson that a covenant, bereath diatheke, um, diatheke being the counterpart, is a bond, almost he like says a legal, in blood. a legal bond. Now he says in bl- blood. The problem I have with that is that why the, was there need for bloodshed before the fall? The pactum salutis is a problem Adam. for that. Yeah, exactly. Well, but, but but it's a it's a sovereignly administered bond. Um, so it doesn't equal election. Now, this is the only question I'm trying to get at. When you come to a fully realized um, eschatological position of covenant with the new covenant, you have to say as a Baptist. Uh, I'm asking. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, go I- ahead. Imputing. I'm saying you have to say. It seems to me. Would it be correct that you would have to say covenant equals election in the new covenant, but it doesn't in the old? No. See, I don't. I don't say that. Um, I, I would say, and, and again, I'm, I'm sort of striking out on my own here. Um, I, I would say that, that in any place that you have, that covenant always corresponds to election, even in the, the, this, and follow me here, because I, there's a few layers of explanation of this, even in the old covenant, um, even in the old covenant, everyone in the covenant is elect in at least. When I say old covenant, a I mean covenantal. At let's, least in let's a say mosaic covenantal, typical sense, right? Okay, every, let's put it this way: in Israel, in Israel, every person in covenant is elect in at least one, if not two ways. They're elect. Right. They're elect in. They're elect in the typological sense. In national covenant. In national, yeah, the national right. covenant, the typological what the nation, what it was as a nation, its historic redemptive function as right. a nation, as its re, right. in its redemptive historic function as a nation, every single person in the Mosaic covenant was in that typical sense an elect person. So that right. there is a perfect correspondence between covenant and election, even then. Now you can say, well, wait a minute. Clearly, there are what I like to call, and I think you'll like this too, eschatologically elect. That is, right. those that are elect for all eternity to be in Christ. There are also those among the national elect are also these special elect, the ones who are circumcised in heart and obey from the heart, uh, offering up sacrifices in hope of the Messiah. Okay, so we can say that that every every person in the Old Covenant is at least elect typically uh, in the typological sense, if not also elect in the eschatological sense. But then we can also say, well, what about those outside of Israel who are in covenant, but they aren't, but they aren't in typical covenant? There are also non-Israelites, we might go pre-Israel and go to Melchizedek, and say that there are, that there are those who are, in, who are in the covenant of grace who are elect only in the eschatological sense. What I'm saying is this, that the typological sense— gave way to the eschatological sense in the coming of the eschatos Adam, of the eschatological Adam, and because the church is what it is as church by faith and corporation into, in Je- in, Jesus, into Jesus right. Christ, they must, they must obtain to the same status of eschatological election as Christ. Now, that yep. ultimately is my covenant, that is my covenantal argument for so, credo baptism. What, what would you say? And that's a very, by the way, that's a very powerful argument. I've, I, I tottered on the fence of, um, the baptism issue as a new Christian. I did. I did for several years as well. I do think it's a very difficult issue. And anybody that says that it's not to any of our listeners that have made it this far through this discussion, you know, you have never studied the issue because James, I think that was a very good way of, of, um, articulating it. My struggle is if you as a, as a reformed Baptist, and I'm really legitimately just asking this, you have a doctrine of a not completely pure church. So you have, you have wheat and tares, you have um, visible and invisible distinction. How do you account – I mean if if somebody has a sign of baptism, obviously you're going to make that on the basis of a credible profession of faith. Yeah. But they are not – they are not 
savingly united to Jesus, are there A, covenant curses for them, B, would you consider them part of the covenant community? So these are the hard questions yeah, for me. No, I understand that, that we don't yeah. have an earthly, national, typical sure. uh, covenantal structure in the new covenant like in the old. Obviously, as Vossians, we have to we have to see the the transition. So yeah, I would say. I mean, I would say if you want to if you want to get at some of the theology of my doctrine of the church as as a Baptist, and particularly who who ought to be in the church. Um, I would say just read uh, Gerhardus Voss's book on the teaching of the Epistle to the Hebrews, and that really gets at a lot of what I think is the the movement from type to antitype, and from you know Adamic prototype, Israelitish uh, type, and Christological ecclesiological antitype, eschatological. Um, I would say that book articulates it. You're right about the the Baptists have always uh, with the the particular Baptists have always with the Reformed tradition confess. I look I'm looking at a. Uh, the 1689 Confession or the 1677 when it was written, uh, chapter 26, section 3, the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and air. Um, and some have so de- de- degenerated as to become no churches of Christ but synagogues of Satan, um, which is which is essentially what you find in the Savoy and the Westminster. Um, the, the thing that I would say is this. Um, the Baptist is not the, the particular Baptist is not claiming to have sovereign um, insight into who is elect, but rather to say that we, that we only – well, maybe put it this way for, for a Presbyterian understanding. We would, we would only allow to the waters of baptism the same, the same people that, non, that non-patal communionists would tend to allow to um, the Lord's Supper, uh, meaning, meaning you, don't, you don't pretend to have um, – you don't pretend to have a divine and sovereign insight into the actual spiritual condition of that person, but they do have to make a credible profession of faith, which means there is a there is some level of even in Presbyterianism of scrutiny in admitting uh, pr- professing believers to that sacrament. What right, I'm right. saying is, what I'm saying is, I would just scale back and say I'm not. I'm not pretending any more insight than that, but rather I'm just applying that same kind of scrutiny uh, to both sacraments, and I'm doing it. I'm doing it for eschatological and reasons for 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 biblical, historical, theological, Bossian, Ritter Bossian reasons. Um, whereas my eschatology is. This is the way. I, this is kind of how I feel as a Reformed but, Baptist. Sometimes I feel like my emphasis on eschatology goes right down the line with with uh, my pedo covenantal counterparts until we get to the language of of the seed, and then the seed issue. This is how I read. I mean, just kind of hear me out on this. I tend to see that the seed issue, as I see the Presbyterian tradition, looks more looks looks more typical, whereas the 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 particular Baptist confession of seed looks more eschatological. So I would say this. Um, maybe put it in broad in a broad sweeping thing. I would say that the typo, the typological structures that we find in the Old Testament of of um, you know of of land. Of, of sacrifice, of priest, of temple, and of seed, those five major typological structures give way to an eschatological fulfillment, uh, not primarily in the church, but primarily in Jesus and the church by faith incorporation into Jesus. Um, now, I, I do, I mean, I also understand that the Presbyterian isn't saying that he believes that the child is is vitally in union with Christ, but he's saying that he believes he has a good and reasonable hope based on promise uh, to to um to to hope that God would inc- would so incorporate him by faith um what you know do, does the baptist have the same hope uh 
the Baptist denies he has a promise for the hope, but he does hope that the he does hope that the means of grace in the church, um, the the word of God speaking in the sacraments, um, in the presence of children, and the word of God speaking through his minister in the church would be a means of grace, of effectual saving grace to the child in the same way that most Presbyterians, I think, would hope that it would be. All I'm saying is, if we're going to allow temple, priesthood, sacrifice, and land to give way to eschatological fulfillment already, can we not also allow seed to give way to the same kind of eschatological fulfillment as regards the constitution of God's eschatological people? That's, I mean, that's the major difference in how we would read Isaiah 59.21— you know, Jeremiah thirty one. Yeah, prophecies in the context of the new covenant that we see mentioning children, you know, that my my word, this is my covenant, my spirit upon you, my word shall not depart from your mouth, nor the mouth of your seed, nor your mouth of your seed seed. Right. Um, well, so this that is, is where the question we, I that's have where it, we draw the line. We're very, very, very similar. But, but how Our, could how could you give a new covenant promise to an old testament Israelite in in words other than typology, meaning when you read when you read the last, um, you see that's a it's interesting. That's a well, very literalistic interpretation of that text. But when you read the last eight chapters of Ezekiel as as a covenantalist, you're not reading the rebuilding of a physical temple on on a hill in the in in the, you know the near eastern Canaanite right. province. You're not reading that as the fulfillment of of you're not reading that as as stone upon stone building a physical structure. You have you have a different eschatological understanding of That's, of what absolutely. that temple and restitution is. What I'm saying is, um, eschatological promises are are frequently in the Old Testament couched in or or given in the husk of typological la- language so, so that would you we apply that to acts to the promises to you and to your children and as many as will believe do you apply that typologically then? yeah i i t- yeah i would i would i would apply that eschatologically meaning i would so i would not say physical when peter says the promises to you and to your children you would not apply that physical to children Oh man, tough text. Um, I I would say you know I was I mean when you get it now now we're doing the text for text uh, thing which is which no, no, is no, more no, inter- no it's okay I'm, I'm that's really no asking. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to avoid that I'm not exactly. trying to avoid that but I would take that as not as not a seed not a promise to your seed as physical seed but to but to a, a promise to your seed. Um, in as much as they join with the believers, to all who believe, I think the assumption. I think the seed, which we do make that distinction. That's too, true. That, you do make that, that, that distinction. The promise is ultimately to the elect descendants, yeah. not. But you know, we we also look at it as a free offer of the gospel, and this is. I mean, this is a tough issue. I'm the first to say, well, I could, you know, well, I could certainly argue back on a number of these points it you know at the end of the day it's a very very difficult issue so kind of coming i appreciate how much you've thought through and and how consistent you're being with your typological redemptive historical kind of coming full circle on the historical place i think one of my concerns is that both both reformed baptists and and our and our presbyterian counterparts understand that the origins of reformed baptists are are within uh, the unique and organic developments of the magisterial Reformation itself. Now, obviously, it drops the magisterial, but hey, so did the Congregationalists and Presbyterians eventually. Um, and I think it's you know there there are some. I'm I'm hopeful that there is some uh, that there is some uh, you know peace being made between Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians. I'm thinking of um, Jim Dennison's uh, projected three volume work on on Reformed confessions. Right, you know, the first right. volume came out from Reformation Heritage. The uh, the he ends he's going to end that anthology 
uh, at least in the projected third volume, in, in 1693 with the inclusion of Keech's Catechism. Keech's Catechism is essentially uh, the particular Baptist counterpart of of the uh, short of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I thought it was. This, I think this it's interesting. Ben, Benjamin Keech, is that right? Right, that's right. And I think it's interesting that that Denison, uh, no no Baptist uh, himself, is is willing to conclude his three volume anthology of of a continental and English Baptist or English uh, Reformed confessions with the inclusion of of a short particular Baptist. Uh, Catechism. Sure, so sure. I guess I'm, I'm hopeful that um, at least we can start binding some of our works within the same covers yeah. of books, e- even if uh, ecclesiologically, <laughs> you know, we're, we're sort of hammering it out differently. I'll, t- I'll uh, tell you what, James, I actually this year as a church planner have decided as soon as I start uh, inquirers courses, I'll probably just start one Sunday school. Sunday school course for the church for the the beginning the new year for the next couple of years and my goal is to work through all of the Protestant confessions to show that Protestant confessions were reformed confessions mm. and I'm certainly going to do the London Baptist confession just to show you know while we have these points of dissimilarity and disagreement look how much we have in common and that Protestantism was calvinistic yeah. Protestantism was, you know, there was there was uh, uniformity on yeah. on 99% of these things and that Protestantism right. was not broad evangelicalism and that's, that's why right. we need to be working together I that's, think. That's and and Protestantism was self-consciously confessional and confessional didn't mean right. the individual church's um, statement of faith but it meant a doctrine by which you bound yourself to other churches of like faith in a kind of right. mutual obligation. Mm. Um I'll, I'll suggest this throughout a, a book title as we wrap it up. When, when you teach that, um, especially as relates to uh, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Baptists, I would heartily recommend um, Jim Renahan's book, True Confessions, Baptist Documents in the Reformed Family, in which he, he sets up – it's kind of, it's kind of um, like Beakey and Ferguson's uh, Reformed Confessions Harmonized, but this is, this is a harmon- – this is actually the full the full documentation of every confession that he includes, and he sets out in parallel columns uh, the 1677 Baptist right next to the Savoy and next to the Westminster, and he puts in bold any words that are changed or or different. And it's really, I mean, it's really a fascinating uh, parallel edition of of Baptist Congregationalist and Presbyterian confessions of the 17th century. It's like running for all of you programmers, like running a diff in SVN. And I'll give it. I'll, I'll give it. Okay, I don't know what that is at all. I'm not a programmer, but I'll give another plug. Jim Jim Renahan is the uh, teaches at the uh, Reformed Baptist Institute uh, on on campus at Westminster Seminary in California. And though that is not an official extension or wing of Westminster Seminary, California, which is to anyone concerned, still a firmly paedo-baptistic uh, confessional school, three forms of unity or Westminster standards, but they have but they have carved out a little space for the Reformed Baptist Institute to teach uh, particular Baptist history and symbolics. And I think Jim Renahan, you would find him very sympathetic to the mainstream of Protestant and Reformed uh, development. Sure. Well, let me uh, let me pull a Bill O'Reilly and and close with a cheap shot and tell you I'm going to give you the last word, but I actually won't give you the last word. 
uh, from from Jeremiah 31. Uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Uh, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So James, if you want to have that over-realized eschatology, you're in the wrong profession, because we shouldn't have to need teachers. Give give me all give me all the realization of eschatology you can. <laughs> hey, I wanted to, but we still need teachers, James. <laughs> and if we over realize this verse, uh, they shall no longer shall each one teach his neighbor. <laughs> and and and, and neither and neither and neither will any. Last, here we go. Here the, on, yeah, the Baptists on, and Presbyterians on, are going at it, and, <laughs> and, and neither will they break that covenant. Wow, unbreakable covenants. That's wonderful. And we have and we have a typology in the New Covenant in baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are typological yes, and are not comp- pointing forward to what is yet to be fully realized. All right. Well, this has been great. This has been fun. So I appreciate it, James, you taking the time to, James, to talk with awesome. us. Yeah, really no, that good. was very helpful. And I, I hope I people hope, find I hope this you interesting. Get, I mean, I hope, I hope you get some, uh, some downloads because that'll be – hopefully that'll be a, an ironic and fun discussion yeah, we look you know. to do we're looking to do more of this in the future. I can't disclose all of our plans, but we have some really really interesting and exciting debate type things coming in the in the next few months. I'm I'm working on scheduling some things now, but I don't want to disclose exactly well, what I we're did, doing because yeah, it's in flux. But but this you well, know we, me. We I'm, wanna, I'm not I'm not real bullish about no uh, no no. I know, but we're we're looking uh, at the Reform Forum to produce some more uh, materials that are designed to really sharpen our understanding of different issues. And by doing in order to do that, we're going to. Uh, try to present people uh, defending and giving the presenting and defending their views from different uh, perspectives on particular issues uh, because it's good for the edification of the church when it's done in a spirit of uh, brotherhood. So thank you, James, for that. Um, uh, as I uh, mentioned on the Reform Media Review, you can find James' latest article on William Lee in the Westminster Theological Journal speaking about Edward Lee, sorry. Right. Thank you. Uh, about Protestant uh, scholasticism and, and uh, Lee's particular method. Uh, very excellent article. I'd recommend that to you. You can uh, find more information and uh, read Nick's posts over at feedingonchrist.com. And you can find out all about the Reform Media Review, Christ the Center, Proclaiming Christ, all these new programs that we have on uh, the website at reformedforum.org. If you would like to get a hold of us, of course, you can send us an email at mail at reformedforum.org or you can now send us a voicemail we encourage you to do that at 44097forum we want to thank everybody for listening and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center